0: Weekend Warriors, the weekly podcast on foreign policy. I'm Essie Cupp. You haven't heard much about it, but one of the worst humanitarian disasters is unfolding right now in Yemen. You may remember about a month ago, a Saudi missile incinerated a bus full of school children, all to all of our horror. Forty children died in, in that one strike. You might say, sure, that's awful, but what's it got to do with us? Well, uh, that missile was U.S.-made, We're selling billions in arms to Saudi Arabia and the UAE so that they can ostensibly fight off the rebel Houthis for control of Yemen. But the civilian casualties have been astonishing. According to U.N. data, up to one-third of all Saudi-led coalition airstrikes hit civilian targets. While there's been some bipartisan concern in Congress over the high civilian casualty rate and some debate at the Pentagon over whether we should have more oversight of of Saudi strike plans. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, earlier this month decided to certify to Congress against the advice of people who are experts in this field that the Saudis and the UAE are taking proper steps to ensure and safeguard civilian lives, despite mounting evidence to the contrary. This now allows the U.S. to continue a $2 billion arms sale to Saudi Arabia and and to provide other important military support. So for three years, a, a Saudi Arabian backed coalition has been locked in this civil war with the Houthis for control of the country. It's led to a total economic collapse in a country that was already the poorest in the Middle East. The alarmingly high casualty rate is due in large part to starvation. The Houthis control the port where seventy percent of the country's food enters. And the strategy by Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and their allies has been to starve them out. Millions of families, women, children are in danger of losing their lives because of that risk. 50,000 children already have. Uh, I'm going to talk to a leader in humanitarian refugee crises later, but first I want to talk to CNN senior international correspondent Nick Payton-Walsh. He's live here from London. Um, Nick, to set the scene here, Talk about the stated reason for U.S. involvement, what's been described by the State Department as defending Saudi Arabia from a, a quote, malign Iranian influence and and also AQAP, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula.
1: Yeah, I mean, the al-Qaeda element in this is kind of separate to backing the Saudis. That's being dealt with by U.S. special forces in a different part of the country. And AQAP have kind of got a better foothold in Yemen because of the chaos. So let's put that to one side. Yeah. There's been a long-standing American-Saudi Arabian alliance in the region. A lot of it comes down to money, frankly. Washington and uh, lots of arms manufacturers in the U.S. have been addicted to the Saudi petrodollar for quite some time. And that also fits well into the alliance Saudi Arabia and the U.S. have had in many different regional conflicts. Confrontations for decades now. Now, none of that has suddenly stopped because the Saudi Arabians have got themselves caught up in this particularly protracted, particularly nasty war on their southern border in Yemen. Remember, Yemen is right next to Saudi Arabia. This is very much like the US having a vision about what needs to happen inside of Mexico. The stated reason is that there are local ally, uh, Saudi Arabia, and they're fighting our kind of regional nemesis, where a lot of the American establishment believe Iran is the key foe Mm -hmm. and has been for decades in that particular region, despite the kind of brief entente and rapprochement that the Obama administration allowed to happen with the nuclear proliferation deal. The real politic in all of this, frankly, is twofold. The first one, which has been sort of reiterated by the pentagon chief jim mattis is if we're yeah. not on side with them if we're not trying to guide what they do it's just going to be even messier that some element of american expertise allows them to be and it doesn't you know when we talk about civilian casualties in this scale nothing's good but allows them to possibly be slightly more precise that doesn't always hold up and i'll come to that in a minute yeah but the other bit of real politic too is money really if they don't buy the weapons off the Americans, they'll probably buy them off the Russians. Mm. And, frankly, the U.S. arm industry needs Saudi money for R&D, research and development, and various other things, too. It helps get various congressmen get elected. It helps jobs. There's no doubt that those hundreds of millions of dollars are extraordinarily important to the United States. And, frankly... In a war like Yemen, they find themselves kind of without choice, sort of on the side of the Saudi Arabians because of regional alliances, even though there may mm. be parts, I think, of uh, certainly the United States establishment that are disgusted to some degree at the level of civilian casualties. Even Jim Mattis himself has said that the U.S. support for the Saudis is not open ended.
0: Right. And and well, to be clear, we're not just sending we're not just sending bombs. We're sending howitzer parts, Black Hawk helicopters, um, the anti-missile system known as terminal high altitude area defense, we are, we the United States, are invested beyond what the average American likely knows.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, the argument is, are better, more accurate weapons more likely to avoid civilian casualties? Or are you actually giving people an extra level of confidence to go and do worse, bad things? Now, I mentioned how the kind of idea of if we weren't on their side, things uh, could be worse, how that didn't necessarily always stand up. Something's always stuck in my mind. One of the senior military officers was giving testimony on the Hill uh, recently, in which he said, once the US has refueled, uh, Saudi Arabian or one of the other coalition countries jet in the sky because they also refuel the planes right. too. They don't necessarily where, know where it goes afterwards. In fact, they don't. Right. Want, they said where it goes afterwards, and intentionally, they want they to Nick, intentionally,
0: right? I mean, well, for, quite- for some plausible deniability, right?
1: For some plausible deniability, and on top of that, too, they say that they don't always know how the intelligence that they provide the Saudi Arabians for targeting, how that's actually used. But how can you then necessarily stand that up as saying, but what we're actually doing is helping them be safer and protect civilians? They sort of try to have it both ways, where there's a degree of plausible deniability, but also the major logical tenet is that because we're there, because we're helping them, we're keeping everybody slightly safer. That doesn't always join up. But then again, things don't normally in war, because it is, unfortunately, extraordinary, messy and brutal thing.
0: No, it's very hard to say we're, we're, we're helping to guide them when we intentionally decide not to know what their targets, what their strikes will be beforehand. Um, let's also point out, though, on the other side, the Houthis have lobbed thousands of mortar shells and rockets into Saudi territory. Uh, the Saudis say they're just defending themselves. What do people need to know about that side, minus our involvement?
1: Well, let's wind all this back, like, yeah. three years. I was in Yemen when the Hadi government at the time collapsed, were kicked out by the Houthis. Now, the Houthis are a strong tribal Yemeni movement. Uh, yeah. You know, they have some Iranian backing, that's fair to say, certainly. Uh, Hadi was sort of weak, didn't really have good enough control on the capital, and he was kicked out very quickly um, over a period of few days. He went away, he got the Saudis and the Emiratis on side, and they began this lengthy grind campaign to retake the southern territories and move up the kind of southwest uh, towards um, the port of Hadeda now, which is the key focus of the military assault, to kick the Houthis back. But the Houthis are now retreated to kind of the southern, sorry, the northern higher plains where the capital Sana'a actually exists. And because this war has sort of leveled so much destruction upon a society, frankly, which was already on the borderline starvation, already extremely poor, as you said earlier on, it's put now about three quarters of the country in need of food aid. There are estimations of you know, about 8 million people or so potentially in risk of some starvation in, in the months ahead. Uh, it, it is as desperate as you could possibly yeah. imagine. And to some sad degree, because of the lack of global attention upon that, so much of the destruction seems to pass quite often without a large amount of, uh, of, of global outrage. The key thing happening now, though, is that port city of hadeda which is still controlled by the Houthis and it's vital for a solid proportion of the aid that comes into the country. That's now the focus of much of the assault. The UN have tried to slow it down. They've tried to get negotiations. But that's certainly pushing ahead. I have to say, though, you know, you look at this more broadly... The Saudis, when they first went in, talked about months. They've been now there fighting for nearly three full years. Yeah. It's very bloody. It's very messy. The different militia fighting with them aren't always cohesive. The Houthis don't look like they're about to get kicked off the higher ground of Sana'a. So all we're really looking for in the months ahead is just an increasingly bloody mess mm. with a mix of starvation and poverty fitted in and so many civilians with nowhere to run.
0: Well, so earlier this year, Jim Mattis, secretary of defense, said, uh, quote, our goal is to push this conflict into the U.N. brokered negotiations to ensure that it ends as soon as possible. As you mentioned, we're three years in. Um, Are we are we close to that goal?
1: It's very hard to tell, to be honest. I think yeah. the problem you have is in Saudi Arabia. You have a a young, quite fired up leader who has a degree of proving himself, perhaps, to do to his military elite. He's not going to look like the tough man of the region if he suddenly goes crawling off to the negotiating table against the Houthis. You know, nobody doubts the Houthis are weaker militarily to the Saudi Arabians, who spent sure. billions on their armed forces, one of the better equipped militaries in the region. There, and they have, as I say, the US backing them in terms In terms of targeting and perhaps other elements of assistance that aren't always made entirely public. I think it's doubtful that the Saudis will want to to back down here. Uh, They they may conveniently look for some sort of political slowdown here, maybe. They're not certainly not doing themselves any favours internationally in all of this. But all of this is the near abroad. And I think when we talk about these things from kind of the other side of the Atlantic or certainly where I am in London here, we forget that people have to live with the solutions that they come up with at the negotiating table for decades ahead it's their own, you know, local neighbor. Um, so there's much more at stake in those areas. But, you know, this is not a, a conflict that appears to have anything other than losers in it at the moment.
0: Mm. Um, I'm wondering, I don't know when you were last in Yemen, but do you get the sense that Yemenis blame us? Uh, that week that Trump was in Riyadh earlier this year, thousands took to the streets in Sana'a to protest, quote, U.S. terror in Yemen. Do they blame us?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, the United States, that is. Yeah, I yeah. was last on a, on the airport on a UN aid plane, um, sort of in mid 2015 or so. And you know, at times the younger Yemenis aren't always uh, that welcoming in that kind of part uh, of the country. And it's because, yes, they put the two and two together and they have certainly realised that the Saudi Arabians have accuracy, have munitions, have weaponry because of the United States deciding to sell it to them. You know, mm-hmm. it's an open commercial market and it, Saudi Arabia is certified as being adequately, in the view of, you know, uh, US officials, adequately respecting of human rights to be able to qualify to get uh, those kind of munitions. And you can disagree with that to your heart's content. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yes, yeah, certainly I think there are a few Yemenis who don't see see that. There are some Yemenis, frankly, who just want the war to stop. And if, you know, the U.S. were to, to try and slow it down, yeah. I'm sure they would be appreciated to that degree. But this is um, this is a conflict, the regional and sort of geopolitical aspect of which I don't think is lost on anybody inside of it who's doing the suffering.
0: Uh, lastly, you know, you correspondents like you um, do do such important work. I wonder if you think that Western media has given this enough attention. It's almost a rhetorical question. But, but do you think, like so many other crises internationally, do you think Western audiences, Western media, that is, gives this the attention, the oxygen, the eyeballs, the airtime it deserves?
1: I think, first up, obviously no. This is is the forgotten war to some degree. But then you also look at the other conflicts that have been going on since 2015 when this started. And we're overloaded at this point. Afghanistan, people are dying there at a rate that hasn't been seen for years. Airstrikes are happening at a record level almost for the last decade. That barely gets attention. We're into a strange period now where I think fatigue is setting in and so many of these protracted conflicts. ISIS have sort of begun to dissipate and Mm. some of the things that were occupied People's minds in the Middle East are slowing. So Yemen should be taking up so much more of people's focus because, frankly, it is something really that if the United States put its foot on the hosepipe towards Saudi Arabia or put greater conditions on them, like the Obama administration did when they uh, stopped the supply of certain weaponry because of civilian casualties uh, back in 2016, if they did that, they could certainly wrap this up or put pressure for some kind of solution. But still, you know, this is a country which is slipping into greater chaos, warlordism. It's not, you know, you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again just with a piece of paper and a political agreement in Switzerland or something. You know, like Afghanistan, this is going to take decades of rebuilding. And the people who will suffer between that point and now are a myriad and often incredibly young.
0: Nick Payton Walsh, thanks so much for talking with me today. And thanks, as always, for your reporting. Stay safe. Cheers. This week
1: on Boss Files, Land Lake CEO Beth Ford says that despite the coronavirus outbreak, farmers are still working hard to bring food to the shelves.
2: Yeah, there's plenty of food right now, and actually farmers are still working. This is an essential industry as defined by the government, but it actually is defined by all of us, and we know that.
1: Tune in for the latest in our series of conversations with leaders about how they're coping with all of the uncertainty and the challenges presented by the coronavirus pandemic.
0: warriors and se cup we're talking about the humanitarian crisis in yemen which i think people have heard far too little about but i want to broaden this out to refugee crises more generally and how we address them globally uh, we all think we all think we care we all think caring uh is sometimes enough and it turns out there are there are good ways to to care and and not so good ways to care um, for this conversation, I have Dr. Samantha Nutt. She's founder of the War of uh, War Child Canada and War Child USA. She's worked with children and their families at the front line of many of the world's major crises, from Iraq to Afghanistan, Somalia to the Democratic Republic of Congo, Sierra Leone to Darfur. Uh, Dr. Nutt's critically acclaimed debut book, "Damned Nations: Greed, Guns, Armies, and Aid," is a number one national bestseller, both hardcover and paperback. Uh, welcome, Sam. Thank you so much, Essie. So I should tell people how I came upon your work. Um, my friend, Thomas Sadosky, who I know you know, he's been on my show Unfiltered before. He's, he's an actor. Uh, people probably know him uh, from from silver screen and, and big screen. Um, and he's also a humanitarian activist for Refugees International. And I went to visit him and he had a copy of your book for me, and he told me I had to talk to you. So
2: talk about— He's a fantastic human being. And, he really uh, and is. Martin's so critically involved. He's actually—we're doing an event together in L.A. next week, and uh, uh, no, I have uh, just massive respect for him. He's doing really, really important stuff, and he's really
0: uh, just hyper-engaged in the issues, which is something I really uh, admire and appreciate. He is. I mean, in addition to your book, he had printed out— some, um, some articles that I had to read and stapled them together. And he really wanted me to, uh, to, to get to know who you were. I love his passion. So talk about War Child. How did, how did War Child come to be?
2: Well, War Childs International Humanitarian Organization, in fact, we are, uh, in Canada and the United States, we are the only organization, humanitarian aid organization, uh, completely devoted to the impact of war on children. That is our specialty um, throughout the world. And so we take a long-term view of the problem of war, uh, where a lot of organizations are very good at the short-term needs, food, water, shelter, blankets, and that kind of thing. We actually look at the factors that drive war, that drive violence and poverty, and we try to disrupt them at its source. And we do that through programs that invest in kids' education, uh, access to justice and protection for women and girls in particular because we're working in areas where there are very high rates of sexual and gender-based violence. And then we also do that through economic development. So essentially increasing the resiliency of families and helping to rebuild communities and, uh, and disrupt war at its source.
0: Talk about this idea, um, you know, people think of, of aid groups, of humanitarian groups as, you know, benevolent, wanting to go in, do the right thing. But talk about this idea from the other side, from the recipient side, this idea of a sort of colonialism that can take hold.
2: Well, that's, that's true, and that's something that I do, I do write about. And, and our model is to invest completely in local communities, local community-based organizations. We have 600 staff throughout the world. Ninety-eight percent of them are local, so they come from war zones. They're giving back to their communities. And that can be a problem of aid. When people, yeah. people come in, they have great intentions, but um, they often don't understand the local context. They can prop one group up at the, often at the expense of the other and contribute to some of the divisions that exist locally. When the media goes home and the donations dry up, that expertise and that infrastructure goes away as well. And so too often we come at it from a place of assumption where what we really need to be doing is building up the strengths that exist locally and investing in them to do the work. And we have found over the years that that's what builds the most successful and the most sustainable programs.
0: So what are we we, – Western aid organizations. What are we getting right when it comes to these refugee and humanitarian crises?
2: Well, what we're getting right, and we have to remember that we're facing the worst uh, refugee and displacement crisis since World War II. We have more than 60 million people right now who've been displaced from their homes uh, and several million people as well who are facing grave risk of famine. And you mentioned Yemen is, is certainly one of those countries. So one of the things that we are doing right is that we are investing in organizations that are on the front lines of these crises, whether it's our own or whether it's UN agencies, groups like World Food Program, uh, Doctors Without Borders, and others who are trying to respond to those urgent basic needs and that's critically important but what we often get wrong is that war is a long-term problem and so right. we need to be thinking long-term sometimes when we have models of humanitarian assistance that rely uniquely on handouts you know then we can create uh, unfortunately cycles of dependency where people uh, are sitting around waiting for uh, more contributions and more support and and unfortunately what we know and we've seen this in the case of Syria and I'm just back from the region uh, a week ago um, eventually those the, those those supports begin to wind down, they dry up, there's donor yeah. fatigue, um, and people are left even more vulnerable than they were. So what we need to change in that model is we need to be thinking about how do you help support these uh, refugee groups and others who are at risk over the long term? How do you uh, increase access, girls' access, for example, to education? How do you improve the economic opportunities that women are facing? How do you increase the participation of civil Society organizations, for example? How do you strengthen governance and the rule of law? So, these are the really critical questions, and and that's really where our aid uh, money and our donations as individual citizens should be going so that we have, uh, you know, that we're really moving the doll forward over the long term. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, you talk about fatigue, and believe me, it is a word I am familiar with because in, in Western media, it's just not easy to get people to care about about these kinds of issues. The fatigue is uh, a very daunting problem that we run up against all the time. There's just not an interest to hear about this stuff all the time. Now, I ignore that fatigue, and I go right ahead. And, I you know, I talk about Myanmar, and I talked talk this week about Yemen. I talk a lot about Syria. Um, but the problem that I confront so often, I'm sure you do too, is beyond the moral and ethical obligations that... I feel we have. I'm sure you feel we have. Why does a war over there, in quotes, matter for us here? That's what I have trouble communicating to people here at home. I look at that. And and
2: first of all, I think the the role that that you're playing in the media play in general to keep these issues in the news, I mean, that is a a huge part of of, uh, you know, the struggle that we face is to, to draw people's attention to it because that keeps it relevant, that keeps people uh, thinking about it, donating to it. So, you know, I applaud uh, you and CNN for the great work that you do in that in that regard. Um, look, I mean, I think there are a couple of ways that I could answer that question. For one thing, uh, so much of what we're seeing around the world in terms of conflict, it comes from centuries of, uh, you know, bad policy and colonialism and mistakes and uh, and and, you know, Difficult histories that, that need to be rectified and need to be solved. Uh, artificial borders. I mean, you look at what's happening, for example, in the Middle East, and going back all the way to Pico and and what that has done to create uh, divisions and and many in many ways contributing to the violence that we're seeing today. So so on the one hand, what you're what we're wrestling with is this um, this this history when it comes to war, the the sort of generational conflicts and disputes that have remained unresolved, Um, and those are you know to be honest I mean those, those those are the reasons why we need robust foreign policy uh, why we need to be invested why we need to be paying attention to these issues why we have to have elected representatives and a strong voice at the UN Security Council to try to get to some of the heart of, of these particular issues so that's that's one thing I would say mm-hmm. the second piece of what I would say in terms of getting people to pay attention and why why it matters you know war is in everything that we do every single day and we often don't appreciate that we are heavily invested in Conflict, whether it's through uh, our public pension funds and and our investments in arms manufacturers, whether it's through, for example, the coltan or the tungsten or the copper that we find mm. in our cell phones and our computers and our video game consoles, so we often believe that war is a problem of over there and it's very distinct yeah. and 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 far removed from us. But in actual in 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 actuality, um, war is a part of our everyday existence, and so. Uh, making sure that we're also part of the solution at the same time uh, is,
0: mm-hmm. is critically important. And also um, talk just briefly about about national security implications for large diasporas of refugees pouring across borders and burdening economies that are already overburdened. Um, talk about why that should matter here.
2: Well, you're absolutely right. And and to that point, that kind of violence, uh, violence anywhere, spills over borders. It can topple governments. It can make uh, other countries more violent and more unstable. We've seen that in the Middle East. We see the migrant and refugee crisis that has been plaguing Europe uh, and the impact of that and, and this kind of mass movement of people. So we do know that that uh, when you have countries that are at war, it's not uniquely contained to those countries. It has dramatic global implications, and that affects all of us, no matter where we live in the world.
0: Um, I just want to ask you quickly about Syria in particular, um, because as I mentioned, it's it's something I talk about a lot. Um, We've already lost half a million Syrians, 50,000 of them children. There are more Syrians displaced outside of Syria than currently living in it. Do you think Syria can be saved?
2: You know, um, look. You've got Assad is still in power, and yeah. having just returned from the region, I have been. We're working with Syrian, Iraqi, and Yemeni refugees. Just, uh, I mean, in, in Amman, Jordan, and elsewhere, and. Look, I'll tell you, the the refugees are under tremendous pressure to return. The sense is that this war uh, was basically won by Assad with support from Russia and support from Iran. Um, The contributions to those refugees in terms of international governments have been in decline. So their their rent subsidies, Mm. their food subsidies, and remember 70% of them are living outside of camps, are uh, either non-existent or half of what they were a few years ago. So they're feeling Mm. immense pressure to return. And yet at the same time, they're so fearful to return. Their properties, that yeah. they've been out of the country for more than six months, have been uh, acquired now by Assad. Mm-hmm. And um, and many of them are worried that they'll be tortured or killed or their sons will be arrested uh, and husbands the moment that they return. So, um, look, I mean, I'm not optimistic that this war is, uh, is, is, is over uh, mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that those millions of refugees who are living outside of Syria – They have nothing to go back to, and they're still afraid for their lives. And until those fundamental issues get resolved, um, they're going to continue to live with violence and insecurity.
0: I think that's why it's so important that we advocate uh, here at Home for Safe Zones. Uh, No one wants to be a refugee. No one wants to live outside of their their country, away from their family. But we have to give them some semblance of protection and security and stability to return uh, before we just push them push them back into uh, a war zone just switching absolutely, gears. Absolutely. Um, I mean,
2: these are people who, who fled at yeah. that, and now they're being told that they should just go back, that, that this is the way it's supposed they're, to be. Yeah. And, and that's the problem.
0: It, yeah. Uh, unimaginable. Um, just switching gears before I let you go. You say hashtag me too should mean hashtag them also. Explain what that means.
2: Well, for me, it's about making sure that when we think about uh, violence against women and sexual harassment and sexual assault, that we remember that in war zones throughout the world, these are daily realities for women there as well. If you're looking at the rape pandemic, for example, of Eastern Congo, or the many, many hundreds of thousands of women who experience sexual violence in relation to, to war uh, throughout the world, and making sure that when we talk about, for me, as, a, as as a woman and as a feminist, it's about making sure that we're also... Um, it, giving back to them and investing in them and empowering them and making sure that they can seek justice and seek legal redress. And so it's about situating the struggles that we have everywhere in the world as women, uh, as, as part of a global problem and finding, reaching across borders and finding that solidarity.
0: Thank you so much, Sam, for joining me and for all of the work you do. Tom uh, Sadowsky was right to introduce <laughs> us. I'm so glad he did. Thanks so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Weekend Warriors. I'm Essie Cotton.